You're so vain. Excuse me, Lily? Oh, sorry, you caught me. I was just <laughs> inspired by uh, this week's chat and Carly Simon just came to mind. You know, you're so vain. I bet you think this product's about you. You know, that's not the actual lyric, but I see what you did there. And yes, it kind of fits. I mean, we are talking with Tony Poon about how ego is the product killer. Yes, qu'est-ce que <laughs> Oh my God, Randy, stop. That is too much of an AOM. Anyway, we had a great chat with Tony. He is now the Chief Product Officer at R0, who are doing some really interesting things to make office spaces safe and other spaces. And he's got some great tips to stop ego from killing your product. And there's so many pop culture references we could have used in this intro. I mean... Stop me before I nerd out and drop one for Dune, you know, about how fear is the mind killer. Stop, stop, stop. (laughs) I'm getting you off. Okay, quick. Let's get straight into our chat with Tony. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hey, Tony, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be talking to you today. Thanks for having me. I've been excited to to have this conversation. (laughs) Um, And before we get started, it would be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and your product origin story. Oh boy, what an origin story. So uh, my name is Tony Poon. I'm currently Chief Product Officer at a biosafety solution company called R0. Origin story. Oh, uh, de- definitely one of the classic story of accidental uh, product management. Started out as a, a super nerdy uh, engineers in a dungeon type style. Um, <laughs> it's semi- in semiconductor of all things. Um, so device physics and things like that. Learned really, really good discipline around kind of single on bat, don't screw it up type engineering disciplines. Uh, and then uh, I started asking the gnawing question of why am I building this feature? That, that's a really hard question to answer in semiconductor because you're about 12 steps removed away from the use cases. Mm. Uh, it turns out they boot you in those kind of scenarios. <laughs> um, just kidding. Uh, but um, so <laughs> that, <laughs> that led me to um, kind of moving on from silicon and then doing system level work. Uh, and then that's when I got exposed to software and architecture uh, and more importantly, asking questions around use cases and um, kind of following that train uh, eventually became a product manager and then kind of more and more from product into solutions and then into enterprise. Done a few interesting things, uh, um, all of which are mostly intersection of physical and digital worlds. Uh, I, I tend to love those complex problems. Recently, I um, did uh, drones for industrial uh, companies, um, mainly uh, mining and constructions. Uh, And then I fell um, in love with the mission that we are currently at, which is kind of making indoor spaces safer uh, for wherever we 
the world turns out into next for hybrid working or whatever it may be. Certainly pertinent conversations nowadays. That, that's, a, that's a little bit about uh, how I came into or fell into product management. Before we get into everything else, Tony, R0 sounds really interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it is you guys do and what is it you, you've got physical and I'm guessing software involved? What does product management for biosafety actually look like? Yeah, it's uh, so uh, R0, uh, it's it, we're very much about enabling people to have an outcome, which is an indoor space that's safe. Uh, and is really surrounding around pathogens and things that we don't see. And certainly, again, a pertinent conversation as of the last few years, but it turns out that the problem has existed uh, way longer. It just has been spotlighted onto them. So what we really do is we build a bunch of technologies in hardware and software and environmental sensing and understanding what is a level of risk uh, in a space. Uh, it could be pathogen risk, it could be viral risk, it's myriads of many risk. And we deploy mitigation in an autonomous way using sensor to make sure that we do those things. Um, and then marry that with software to help connect the outcome of a space or space to business outcome uh, for different types of organization. A lot of them are currently folks like education, uh, government or large scale organization that really have a strong in-person culture. It's been a challenging uh, na- water to navigate the last few years on trying to understand how do we continue to drive productivity with certain muscle memory about how we converse with each other, uh, also learning digital at the same time. So uh, this kind of goes into that entire conversation of what the future of work looks like also. And that must have been really interesting period with COVID coming along. How did that, this is not our kind of topic for today, but just curious as we're talking about it, like how did that impact the way that the team was operating? Were you just kind of on this mission anyway, or did it change the the strategy or the plan in any way? Oh, it was a really good question. Um, Actually, the company is, is fairly young. It's only two years old. So it's definitely one of those battlefield formations um, where, you know, the, I, I'm actually not one of the co-founders, but the co-founders basically saw a need in the world and, the, you know, human catastrophe that was kind of happening around the world. And they wanted to do something about it. Mm. Um, so that's really where the founding story came in. And it turns out that there existed a set of technologies that were stuck in hospitals for decades that didn't really get democratized or become accessible um, and wasn't really modernized to a way that it was, let's just say, accountable and attributable to outcomes. So that's really what we did. We set out on the mission really is how do we help people come back to the world in a safer place, but in a way that is measurable and attributable. And I think the folks that it was one of the strongest mission aligned team that I've ever seen. Most, unfortunately, again, there's a catalyst in the world that's very vivid to all of us. Uh, but be, even beyond that, being able to connect to the, something that we all experience, which is, you know, 90% of the time that we are spent nowadays are indoors. We go outside to go to get inside. So it's a very vivid relationships of what a better outcome would be either for the industry as well as for ourselves personally. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And but when you have um, innovation that happens as part of like a big crisis like that, then these are the kind of products and businesses that are so fascinating to to come out of that experience. And yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys do. But 
Let's move on to our, our topic for today, which is all around our own personal egos risking <laughs> killing our products. <laughs> um, so tell me about this. Like, why, why do you think ego can risk killing our products? Uh, first of all, so many scars. Uh, so, so many scars from personal scars <laughs> around these. Uh, st- still getting them. Um, I think ego is like a... a, a a very high level summary of not truly hanging on to the customer needs. I mean, I think ego at the end of the day can be described and manifest in different ways in our product management kind of cycle. There's like overconfidence, there's optimism, there's fear of being challenged, there's like supremacy, like there are different forms of egos that get injected throughout the cycles. But I think all forms of them, at least that I have experienced, ends up taking us down a path that does not match the customer need. And ultimately, I think ego or not, or maybe there are even other factors in it, it's really about how how do we lose sight of the customer need and therefore potentially building towards symptoms that didn't solve problems or building to something that people actually didn't need in the first place, which is kind of the worst case scenario. Uh, I've been through that many, many times. I've seen teams go through that many, many times. And we continuously try to not get into uh, that space. And I, I find that symptomatically more frequent in actually back to our original conversation with more passion driven teams mm. where, uh, especially around startups where you, you're, you, you, you necessarily start with something very passionate. You have believe in something, you want to change the world. Uh, and you may not have all the data to say that you can, but that's how it starts. And making that conscious transition from passion-driven into data or conviction-driven has always been a challenge, continues to be a challenge with every team. Um, And it's something that I'm always trying to be mindful of, including myself, uh, on do I have data to say that or am I saying that? Um, But that's really where I see ego gets injected a lot into different parts of the development cycle. Tony, you just said you talked about ego-driven, you talked about data-driven, and I know those, but I think you also mentioned conviction-driven. Yeah. What's that? Uh, interesting. Uh, not trying to redefine words in dictionary, but the way I define them, <laughs> it's it's really balancing, especially in, this, in the types of fast-paced, passion-driven startups that we're in. There's a passion versus conviction conversation I always have with my team. It's, it's very easy for us to get really excited about solutions to problems. We might have even research and architect the solutions and we feel wholeheartedly that that is the right way and the best way to solving it. But what we end up finding a lot of times is that there isn't enough data to support that the problem is worth solving. It isn't that we have challenging uh, in solution space is we don't necessarily have the clear enough understanding of what is the problem space and what is the value to which that we could generate for the customer. And to me, that's really where the transitioning between passion into conviction, which requires data. For, for, for us, it, it, we're always trying to be conscious about well, how far do we want passion to drive us and how much do we need data in order to gate important, at least large size, t-shirt size decisions, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, that, that we have that conversation a lot. We, don't, we may not use those words uh, explicitly, uh, but the, really the question is, how, how far do you let the team push on pure passion and ideas and excitement? But how do you throttle them back into what are the facts? What are the personas actually telling us versus what we think the personas need? 
So you've said that you've seen this issue like multiple times and, and kind of suffered it, <laughs> suffered it. But in my experience, like a lot of PMs are notoriously just full of self-doubt and suffer imposter syndrome. Yeah. So is this really, do you think this is really quite a widespread problem? Um, and is it, is it within the sort of product management role or just across the whole business? Oh, interesting. Uh, I think it comes, this might be something that you're trying to tease out, which is different personalities and they react to risk differently. And I guess for, for the good of the last past decade or so, oh gosh, I'm dating myself a little bit over a decade. I've been kind of our earlier side of the teams, so series A, B, and C, we're really trying to find product market fit where most teams in these cases are full of ideas, but trying to chart a course. Um, and then on the other side of it, when you have a more mature product, when you're trying to not screw up something, so to speak, uh, I, I think is where I sometimes see what you are mentioning is like, well, uh, is it really worth the risk? But I, I think regardless of those conversations, it still comes back to, are we driving purely on ideas or mostly on ideas? Or are we having data-rooted conversations so we can have tangible decisions that we're making? So I, I guess from what I've seen, the degree of which people lean in and excitement that they have about their own ideas in a conviction land varies depending on personality and maturity of the product or the stakes of screwing up existing things, so to speak. <laughs> but the transition into being conviction-driven, it's, it's fairly similar. Uh, and the requirements there are always the same, which is, do we hear that from the customer and do we understand what the value is coming from the solution that we were proposing? It sounds really straightforward, but it you, as you said, you feel, yeah. <laughs> it always does. And I, I recognize everything you're talking about, but to, to make sure we're all on the same page and to help everyone else who's, who's listening and, you know, especially to help me, how do we recognize when we've fallen into this trap? How do we, what are the signs that you've tipped over the balance? It's so important of a question. Um, I, no playbooks, to be quite honest. I, I, it would be silly if I said, like, here are five things coming from two tablets. Read them and use them. Um, but things that I've tried and, and have a, a reasonable degree of success, at it, it, the very least, are helpful. Um, it's incredibly important and powerful when people start writing things down. It's surprising. It's simple. It it's almost sounds like, well, okay, I don't need you to tell me that. But the second or the moment people start writing some things down, you start to have the compositions of writing force you into those moments of hesitation and question yourself, where did the source of this information come from? For example, like when you start writing out use cases, starting with the persona's name versus your name, something as simple as that gives you like this like split second pause whatever the descriptors you're describing, the use cases subsequently in that sentence, chances are you have to have rethought before writing the second part of it. And it had that much higher probability of being coming from a customer than yourself. Are you writing user stories that says, as Tony's wants? <laughs> <laughs> I shall. Uh, um, but you know, sometimes we get so busy, we just want to crank them out and we feel like, oh, we've done so much research. We understand this thing inside and out. We've been in so many hours. And sometimes actually the more research you do, the more confidence that you build, the more it has a tendency of getting away from you because you feel like you get it. And sometimes when you feel like you get it, 
you lose sight of the nuances in the workflow that the customer has. Because some of them, to be quite honest, workflows don't always make sense. That none of them are always logical or rational, but that's the point, right? It's like if we could reason our way into this is a perfect workflow, like all you got to do is get trained and you'll be successful, like then we don't need product managers. So I think a lot of times is the more knowledge or sometimes that we lose sight of the nuances that is of our customer. Uh, and then getting rooted back into that is always, always better than trying to drive towards what is an ideal workflow and ends up having a gap that you didn't realize until it's too late. Okay, so this sounds very familiar to me, all of this. Um, I wonder whether it's also more predominant in startups where you have founders who have come up with an idea and they're, you know, they, they've got a problem that they're solving for a market Potentially, they have some of the sort of knowledge and information about that market already or some some kind of subject matter expertise and they want to move quickly. And so they're like, just build some all of these features yeah. because I know these customers need this. and this is <laughs> this is the product that I am building. This is what I'm launching. And I imagine actually to an extent there's that within um, bigger corporations as well with sponsors for particular products or, or, or business models or whatever it, it may be. So how do we coach a different way of thinking for those executives who are typically probably more likely to, to come with the, yeah. the, the non-data driven and more gut driven ideas? So first of all, guilty. Uh, <laughs> I've been guilty the, the whole time uh, in many different roles and different teams. Um, I think that the, the thing that seems to work uh, that I've seen and I, I got for to try to practice as much as I can is being not not penalizing people for asking questions. And it's 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 like a principle we all know we should do that. And uh, but sometimes when you know push comes to shove and schedule pressures are high or stakes are high, you just want to get something done and you you, you you're not as open minded for people to sometimes challenge the root assumptions because you feel like you've already moved, moved past it. But what I have found is if somebody challenged the basic premise of the proposal or the solution, and there isn't a clear answer and you just want to move past it because you want to just go make schedules, that's actually a very, very good place to pause because you couldn't come up with a very concise way of describing what the value is. And I think on the, the other side of that for folks that are, dealing with folks like myself who sometimes are like, you got to go do this, like so obvious. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I mean, ask them in a way that makes sense, give context and like, you know, don't, don't do it in 50 different separate questions, but ask a concise one or two and make sure that there is an, a satisfactory answer for both sides so that we can move forward. Because to be honest, 50% of our jobs as product people are to align different teams so that they can do their best work. And what better way of being able to enumerate the reason why we do something very cleanly so that everybody can line up to it. I've been in so many different situations on this and I, I, I'm afraid I don't have an, a good answer for this anymore because I've been in places where it, it's exactly that. It's how, let's get into a better conversation. Let's get to articulation of perception and value and things like that so that we know that we're all working on the same thing for the same reasons with the same assumptions I've also been in places where it's quicker and easier to just 
run an experiment so we can at least say we tried it and come back with data. And whether it's that or it's uh, we're dealing with a tough stakeholder and it's better to save face by doing that yeah. uh, rather than challenge them. Is is this dependent on the situation or is there? do you think that conversation is always the best way out? Oh, that's such a great conversation. Um, politics are weird uh, and n- none of us really want to like address it head on. But like, look, as much as we don't think is productive, it's there. And I think you, you said it perfectly. Sometimes you just have to have different band-aids for those kind of problems I, I think ultimately every time i i have approached these problems i have seen problem handled uh, and i have seen others handled me uh is through depersonalization the things that work the best are however it is that you can depersonalize a conversation and refocus back to the problems in customer space it could be presenting things that are coming from metrics or dashboard or even industry studies sometimes you, even look at competitors uh, because we can't assume everybody else is stupid. And sometimes when it gets to be like really, really passion driven where, you know, people are throwing ranks or I I think addressing those things in a larger scope, depersonalization effort would would be things like, like how do we do this in two weeks and really answer it very quickly, but be very, very precise about what is our hypothesis so that we can answer them cleanly and move on. And I think that's actually a very important nuance in what you just said, which is, you know, when somebody becomes very passionate, a simple question is, what is it that you think is the reason why we want to build it this way? Forcing the other side to write it down in a clean way actually often is a very interesting and productive exercise because one, you can understand better um, on what they will really, really think is their hypothesis and why it's beneficial. And the other is it forced the other person to really start pushing themselves on being able to educate others on why there's, there's so much conviction, at least from their point of view. And then using that would be a perfect way to drive an experiment. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a big one when I, when I manage or, or coach people is you may be right. It's entirely possible. Or it's also possible that the other person's right. But how you manage that relationship to figuring it out and moving forward is incredibly important. It's not always about being right. It's about how do we get agreement and have the right conversation to move forward together. Absolutely. It's never really the perfect decisions, but it's really about moving forward in a way that builds on conviction. Yeah, I love that. And I think that point about, you know, just going ahead sometimes and doing an experiment, if you have a senior exec saying i want you to build this um and you're like okay what impact do you think it's gonna have and they like it's gonna like two times the conversion rate or whatever and then you do it and you're like okay we monitored conversion and it's done nothing and then they're like oh okay (laughs) Uh, it's very effective against me to be quite honest It, it it forces folks to pause and just be like okay what i really believe because I'm about to be written up, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be blasted around this experiment. It's going to have my name on. So I, I, I better think twice before I, I just hand wave and say, thou shall do. <laughs> so something that's come up a lot on, on, on Twitter, and I'm so sorry for, for citing Twitter <laughs> as, a, as a source of things, but something I've seen come up in conversation a lot over the last couple of years is the idea of people having an innate product sense. Or you talk to people in the industry who have you know, their experience and their gut on things. When do you go with that versus going with, you know, and saying this is a good first approximation or let's try this first 
versus starting with actual data? Oh, that's interesting. I think it depends on the goals for the team. Speaking from more from a personal experience perspective, when it comes to before product market fit, the goal is really experiment the crap out of it so that you can minimize possibilities because you're nothing but possibilities. You have so many ideas you don't even know what to do with. So in those instances where in some ways you have nothing to lose but time um, and you are trying to focus as much as you can onto something that you want to spend more time on, there, uh, you know, we typically try to do more and then get early antidotes so that we can start using that as a framework for filtering. And I think for folks that have established metrics and established businesses that are already kind of running, um, being much more data centric and making decision based on tangible data are much more important because you would be that there's the stakes are higher and then the screw ups or air quote screw ups uh, are much more visible and have tangible impact to the business that you may otherwise cannot afford uh, on, on the other side of that. So for us, it's much more if it's before adoption, we understand how much effort we want to put into it and we understand the risk. And then on existing products, we try to size it small enough so that we can get quick answer before we start making you know medium to large t-shirt size experiments so that we can really ease our way into it and increase the level of de-risking before pulling the trigger on, on some of those projects. And just to come back to some of the terminology that we used when we were thinking about this topic. So the the kind of the concept that ego is the product killer and and ego being that sense of sort of self-importance or self-worth. <laughs> we basically saying that, you know, we can't kind of tie in sort of those micro successes of the product and take pride in those or, or kind of use them to fuel our our own self-worth? Mm. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? I do. I Maybe I'm just broken in that way. Um, <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I don't know. First of all, I, I think every product manager have their own reason for why they want to take on this crazy role. Because like what product managers do is we can't even describe really wholeheartedly what all product managers, we just do stuff to make sure that products are successful. And that that's that part for me though. It isn't really about my ideas. It isn't really about being right. I think at the end of the day is about the impact of whether or not decisions that you and the team made resulted in something that we wanted or more. Mm. I, I'm not saying not don't celebrate being right or don't celebrate being creative, or don't celebrate ingenuity. Like those are team wins and personal wins to some degree, but that's not that's not really a product win mm. in my mind. So I guess my, my approach is always celebrate with the team about ideas, but the victory has nothing to do with any one of us. It has everything to do with whether or not the customer got value. So I don't know, that's, that's the type of product team that I gravitate towards. And uh, celebratory moments are uh, a kind of fleeing, but the durable celebratory things for the team is really about like, look at all these metrics that came out of it. And not only were we right, we, we were actually wrong uh, because it actually did way more. Those are 
the, the things that you actually tend to remember a year or two or three years after, uh, what I find is like those micro moments tend to fade away pretty quickly. And, the, and things that stick around are like, look what we did for this customer. Look what they were able to get out of that. Mm. Look the business impact that we were able to generate. So those tend to be at least naturally, at least in the teams that, that I've been part of, uh, tend to be the things that bubble up as thing, uh, uh, if people cherish those the most. Um, in terms of personal uh, celebratory things, uh, I don't know. I, it, I, those haven't really been um, something that I, I have focused too much around. Uh, team celebration has always been more important. Yeah, I love it. Um, and just thinking about my own kind of journey in products, I know definitely earlier on in my career, I felt like I should have all of the answers. So I felt like I should come with like all of the ideas and they should all be right. And I should have a plan of all of these things and they're all going to like have a positive impact. So I, you know, I'm wondering if there are kind of more junior product people out there who get stuck in that trap of, you know, they their ego is concerned that they're going to be perceived as being inexperienced because they don't have the answer rather than the answer is we don't know what's going to happen. So we need to like get the data and yeah, get the like, It's a really good question. That's a really good question. I, I think it's really important to not mistake or not over-rotate, I think, from like not being egotistical to not being creative or innovative. I, I think those are like two very separate things. Um, being creative and being intuitive in, in how and where problems may be, it is a product manager superpowers to some degree. We, the team kind of rely on us for those because we are synthesizing data. We're putting our nose to the ground. We're sniffing it out. So it's not that I'm suggesting for us to not take the lead in proposing or take the lead in pointing or providing guidance. I think it's really about as we do that, how do we help the team de-risk what we say or what the team believes. So I, I, I personally tried to be the least creative person in the room, mostly because I, I happen to uh, be part of bigger and bigger teams now. So me being the most creative is usually problematic and ends up being uh, egotistical. Uh, but as you're part of your own team, uh, being creative is actually the first step of you being able to get excited about going around proposing solutions. So, uh, it isn't being egotistical if you're trying to be creative and innovative. It is the execution of those ideas without data that gets you to a place where you're more than likely into ego land than in conviction land. So if you're doing this well, if you happen to remove ego, it also means that sometimes you're going to be face-to-face -face with someone who's asking you a hard question. And the best answer you can give is, I don't know. Problem with that sometimes is the, having the confidence to say that and maintain a relationship with people, to for them to walk out of the room and continue the relationship of having confidence in you when you say, I don't know a lot. Is there any, any guidance, any practical advice you have on how to do that elegantly, how to maintain relationships, how to keep things going when you're admitting? I don't know, totally. but... I, I say I don't know all the time, just about maybe every hour. Um, things that I feel like, at least when I use it on people or people use it on me, that always tend to end up being tangible and 
impactful next steps are if it's a two part, I don't know. Like, I don't know, but here's what we're going to do about it. I don't know. And this is why it's less important. So that, that second part is what brings it home of not only is it that we are genuine about our knowledge, but we also have a plan or we have an opinion. We have a point of view. I think maintaining relationship and trust and still being in control, air quotes, uh, it, it isn't the fact that you understand everything. It is the fact that you understand what to do to get to the answer that you need. That to me is far more important. Uh, and I would assert that is far more important for us to project than whether or not we have the right answer. As a matter of fact, somebody who comes to me every single time with, I know the answer, you, you start to take a pause on like, do you really know the answer? Like, let's talk about this. So I, I would much rather folks start with the I don't know, but follow up with here are the plans and here are the reasons why. That to me genuinely builds trust uh, rather than just taking an answer at face value. And then I'm going to push you just to go one step further on that because saying, I don't know, but we'll find out or, but we have a plan or, or that's great for the moment, but what it, it, it can't just be that can it? Sometimes people will also ask you something you generally don't have a plan for yet because they, I don't know, but I'll find out and get back to you. What it, there's that second part of actually following through on that, isn't there? Or having a plan when you walk in the door to say, how do you're going to handle the things that you don't know? How do you get better at that? Well, I think one of the interesting thing about this is when you genuinely don't know, and you're literally, not only do I not know, I actually don't know what to do. That's a perfect time to ask for help. I, one of the things that I've realized over my career that I had sucked at is learning that it's okay to ask for help and how to ask for help. Because when I didn't do that, the team and the product suffered because there was leverage inside or outside the company that were not applied. So to me, it isn't trying to get to an answer or get to a plan when you realize you don't have either. It is about recognizing that you're at that step and admit and go try to ask for help, that's going to get you to be unblocked on either having a plan to go find out or actually genuinely getting to the answer. So to me, like that's the third possibility in this, which is, I don't know, I have a plan. Um, I don't know, I don't have a plan. Here's the help I need. <laughs> I guess that's the third part uh, when the two part don't work. And I'm sorry, I'll just keep going with this. Any practical advice on good ways to ask for help? Oh boy, uh, th I'm still a student of that craft, to be quite honest. Um, I think asking for help without context is very hard for the other person to react to. So what, one of the things I've learned um, is before asking for help, ask myself, how could somebody help me and how would I enable somebody to help me? Asking yourself that question first before asking a question tend to have a higher probability of a productive conversation after. Because a lot of times what I found in the past is I was asking for help in a frantic mode where there was no information being exchanged. There was no context. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, that is never a good ask for help because nobody knows what help you need and what the situation is. So being prepared to give the information, the person that you need help from, and then formulating that question to me has always yielded dividend. Um, it's just spending that moment of time to organize your thought so that asking for help is productive. 
Um, that has always worked for me. Um, and I've always appreciated people that did that with me so that I can actually spend the right time to go say, one, do I know how I can help you? Or two, here's how I help you. Or three, here are the other people that I know will know something about this to help you. Tony, that's such good advice. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I, I've always learned something every time I talk or nerd out about products. So thanks for having me today. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>